morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to today's edition of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. Very uh, happy to be joining you uh, this Martin Luther King weekend, and we'll be beginning today's session with a special program, uh, which will be a tribute to the uh, 92nd birth anniversary of the great uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., someone whose ideas have been very formative in shaping the ideological direction of the free school. And we felt it was very important to uh, commemorate him, uh, particularly now given the historic crisis facing the nation and uh, to have everyone discuss uh, and think about where else can America go in this moment except to the ideas of Martin Luther King and W.E.B. Du Bois. And uh, our program will particularly focus on uh, King's immense importance to the struggles for freedom in Africa and Asia and the struggle for world peace. Uh, joining me uh, today, as always, is uh, Dr. Anthony Montero and from Philadelphia, Today's program will also have uh, Emily Dong, Jake and Serafina Harris, Divya Nair, and Meghna Chandra, Michelle Liu, and joining us from uh, Georgia, uh, Julian Thompson. So uh, before we get started uh, with the program itself, I'd uh, like to ask uh, Doc if you would like to add anything to, to set up the program. Just a sentence or two. Um, you know, this is a time to uh, of solemn and profound uh, homage to a great freedom fighter, anti-imperialist and fighter for world peace, uh, a man whose legacy has not fully been appreciated by the American people as a whole uh, and whose legacy has been distorted by the ruling class and appropriated by them for their own purposes. Uh, we, we hope to do the very opposite of what they have done. And my last words are that um, in this moment of profound crisis of the system, uh, we celebrate King, uh, literally from the battlefields of the ideological struggle. And I would say that is where King must be celebrated from, from the battlefield of struggle. Uh, he was killed April 4th, 1968 on the battlefield of struggle. And so we celebrate him from the trenches of the fight for peace, for human solidarity and against imperialism. Okay, uh, we'll begin the program uh, with a performance by uh, Jacob and Serafina Harris who will be performing the Black National Anthem. Lift every voice and sing to earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmony. 
ponies of liberty. Let our rejoicing as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as a rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun, a new day begun. Let us march on, let us march on till the day is won. Stony the road, we trod bitter the trust. Oh, <laughs> 
Thank you for the wonderful start to this program. Uh, now uh, we'll have Julian Thompson read a selection from Martin Luther King. Thank you so much and good morning, everyone. Um, I have the privilege today of reading a speech given by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, as a tribute to Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January 15th, 1929, and was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. This speech was given just two months before his assassination in Carnegie Hall on the 100th anniversary of W.E. Du Bois's birth. Tonight, we assemble here to pay tribute to one of the most remarkable men of our time. Dr. Du Bois was not only an intellectual giant exploring the frontiers of knowledge, he was in the first place a teacher. He would have wanted his life to teach us something about our tasks of emancipation. One idea he insistently taught was that black people have been kept in oppression and deprivation by a poisonous fog of lies that depicted them as inferior, born deficient, and deservedly doomed to servitude to the grave. So assiduously has this poison been injected into the mind of America that its disease has infected not only whites, but many Negroes. So long as the lie was believed the brutality and criminality of conduct toward the Negro was easy for the conscience to bear. The twisted logic ran, if the black man was inferior, he was not oppressed. His place in society was appropriate to his meager talent and intellect. Dr. Du Bois recognized that the keystone in the arch of oppression was the myth of inferiority and he dedicated his brilliant talents to demolish it. There could scarcely be more, a, a more suitable person for such a monumental task. First of all, he was himself unsurpassed as an intellect and he was a Negro. But beyond this, he was passionately proud to be black. And finally, he had not only genius and pride, but he had the indomitable fighting spirit of the valiant. To pursue his mission, Dr. Du Bois gave up the substantial privileges a highly educated Negro enjoyed living in the North. Though he held degrees from Harvard and the University of Berlin, though he had more academic credentials than most Americans, Black or white, he moved South, where a majority of Negroes then lived. He deliberately chose to share their daily abuse and humiliation. He could have offered himself to the white rulers and exacted substantial tribute for selling his genius. There were few like him, Negro or white. He could have amassed riches and honors and lived in material splendor and applause from the powerful and important men of his time. Instead, he lived part of his creative life in the South, most of it in modest means and some of it in poverty. 
and he died in exile, praised sparingly and in many circles ignored. But he was in exile only to the land of his birth. He died at home in Africa among his cherished ancestors and he was ignored by a pathetically ignorant America, but not by history. History cannot ignore W.E.B. Du Bois because, his because history has to reflect truth. And Dr. Du Bois was a tireless explorer and a gifted discoverer of social truths. His singular greatness lay in his quest for truth about his own people. There were very few scholars who concerned themselves with honest study of the black man, and he sought to fill this immense void. The degree to which he succeeded discloses the great dimensions of the man. Yet he had more than a void to fill. He had to deal with the army of white propagandists, the myth makers of Negro history. Dr. Du Bois took them all on in battle. It would be impossible to sketch the whole range of his intellectual contributions. Back in the 19th century, he laid out a program of 100 years of study of problems affecting American Negroes and worked tirelessly to implement it. Long before sociology was a science, he was pioneering in the field of social study of Negro life and completed works on health, education, employment, urban conditions, and religion. This was at a time when scientific inquiry of Negro life was so unbelievably neglected that only a single university in the entire nation had such a program, and it was funded with $5,000 for a year's work. Against such odds, Dr. Du Bois produced two enduring classics before the 20th century. His Suppression of the African Slave Trade, written in 1896, is volume one in the, in the Harvard Historical Studies. His study, The Philadelphia Negro, completed in 1899, is still used today. Illustrating the painstaking quality of his scientific method, to do this work, Dr. Du Bois personally visited and interviewed 5,000 people. He soon realized that studies would never adequately be pursued nor changes realized without the mass involvement of Negroes. The scholar then became an organizer and with others founded the NAACP. At the same time, he became aware that the expansion of imperialism was a great threat, or was a threat to the emergence of Africa. He recognized the importance of the bonds between American Negroes and the land of their ancestors. And he extended his activities to African affairs. After World War I, he called Pan-African Congresses in 1919, 1921, and 1923, alarming imperialists in, country, in all countries and disconcerting Negro moderates in America who are afraid of this restless, militant, Black genius. Returning to the United States from abroad, he found his pioneering agitation for Negro studies was bearing fruit 
and a beginning was made to broaden Negro higher education. He threw himself into the task of raising the intellectual level of this work. Much later in 1940, he participated in the establishment of the first Negro scholarly publication, Phylon. At the same time, he stimulated Negro colleges to collaborate through annual conferences to increase their effectiveness and elevate the quality of their academic studies. But these activities, enough to be the life work for 10 men, were far from the sum of his achievements. In the six years between 1935 and 1941, he produced the monumental 700-page volume on Black Reconstruction in America, at the same time writing many articles and essays. Black Reconstruction was six years in writing, but was 33 years in preparation. On its publication, one critic said, quote, it crowns the long, unselfish, and brilliant career of Dr. Du Bois. It is comparable in clarity, originality, and importance to the Beards' rise of American civilization. The New York Times said, quote, it is beyond question the most painstaking and thorough study ever made of the Negro's part in Reconstruction. And the New York Herald Tribune proclaimed it as, quote, a solid history of the period, an economic treatise, a philosophical discussion, a poem, a work of art, all rolled into one, end quote. To understand why his study of the Reconstruction was a monumental achievement, it is necessary to see it in its in context. White historians had for a century crudely distorted the Negro's role in the Reconstruction years. It was a conscious and deliberate manipulation of history, and the stakes were high. The Reconstruction was a period in which Black men had a small measure of freedom of action. If as white historians tell it, Negroes wallowed in corruption, opportunism, displayed spectacular stupidity, were wanton, evil, and ignorant, their case was made. They would have proved that freedom was dangerous in the hands of inferior beings. One generation after another of Americans were assiduously taught these falsehoods, and the collective mind of America became poisoned with racism and stunted with myths. Dr. Du Bois confronted this powerful structure of historical distortion and dismantled it. He virtually, before anyone else and more than anyone else, demolished the lies about Negroes in their most important and creative period of history. The truths he revealed are not yet the property of all Americans, but they have been recorded and arm us for our contemporary battles. In Black Reconstruction, Dr. Du Bois dealt with the almost universally accepted concept that civilization virtually collapsed in the South during Reconstruction because Negroes had a measure of political power. Dr. Du Bois marshaled irrefutable evidence that far from collapsing, the Southern economy was recovering in these years. 
Within five years, the cotton crop had been restored, and in the succeeding five years had exceeded pre-war levels. At the same time, other economic activity had ascended so rapidly, the rebirth of the South was almost completed. Beyond this, he restored to light the most luminous achievement of the Reconstruction. It brought free public education into existence, not only for the benefit of the Negro, but it opened school doors to the poor whites. He documented the substantial body of legislation that was socially so useful, it was retained into the 20th century, even though the Negroes who helped write it were brutally disenfranchised and driven from public life, political life, excuse me. He revealed that far from being the tragic era white historians described, it was the only period in which democracy existed in the South. The, this stunning fact was the reason the, the history books had to lie, because to tell the truth would have acknowledged the Negro's capacity to govern and fitness to build a finer nation in a creative relationship with poor whites. With the completion of his book, Black Reconstruction, despite its towering contributions, despite his advanced age, Dr. Du Bois was still not ready to accept a deserved rest in peaceful retirement. His dedication to freedom drove him on as relentlessly in his 70s as it did in his 20s. He had already encompassed three careers. Beginning as a pioneer sociologist, he had become an activist to further mass organization. The activist had then transformed himself into a historian. By the middle of the 20th century, when imperialism and war arose once more to imperil humanity, he became a peace leader. He served as chairman of the Peace Information Bureau and like the Reverend William Sloan Coffin and Dr. Benjamin Spock of today, he found himself indicted by the government and harried by reactionaries. Undaunted by obstacles and repression, with his characteristic fortitude, he fought on. Finally, in 1961, with Ghana's independence established, an opportunity opened to begin the writing of an African encyclopedia. And in his 93rd year, he emigrated to Ghana to begin new intellectual labors. In 1963, death finally came to this most remarkable man. It is axiomatic that he will be remembered for his scholarly contributions and organizational attainments. These monuments are imperishable, but there were human qualities less immediately visible that are no less imperishable. Dr. Du Bois was a man possessed of priceless dedication to his people. The vast accumulation of achievement and public recognition were not for him pathways to personal affluence and a diffusion of identity. Whatever else he was, with his multitude of careers and professional titles, he was first and always a Black man. He used his richness of talent as a trust for his people. He saw that Negroes were robbed of so many things decisive to their existence, that the theft of their history seemed only a small part of their losses. But Dr. Du Bois knew 
that to lose one's history is to lose one's understanding, self-understanding, and with it, the roots for pride. This drove him to become a historian of Negro life. And the combination of his unique zeal and intellect rescued for all of us a heritage whose loss would have profoundly impoverished us. Dr. Du Bois, the man, needs to be remembered today when despair is all too prevalent. In the years he lived and fought, there was far more justification for frustration and hopelessness. And yet his faith in his people never wavered. His love and faith in Negroes permeate every sentence of his writings and every act of his life. Without these deeply rooted emotions, his work would have been arid and abstract. With them, his deeds were a passionate storm that swept the filth of falsehood from the pages of established history. He symbolized in his being, his pride in being the black man. He did not apologize for being black and because of it handicapped. Instead, he attacked the oppressor for the crime of stunt, stunting black men. He confronted the establishment as a model of militant manhood and integrity. He defied them and though they heaped venom and scorn on him, his powerful voice never still, stilled. And yet, with all his pride and spirit, he did not make a mystique out of blackness. He was proud of his people, not because their color endowed them with some vague greatness, but because their concrete achievements and struggle had advanced humanity. And he saw and loved progressive humanity in all its hues, black, white, yellow, red, and brown. Above all, he did not content himself with hurling invectives for emotional release and then to retire into smug, passive satisfaction. History had taught him it is not enough for people to be angry. The supreme task is to organize and unite people so that their anger becomes a transforming force. It was never possible to know the scholar du Bois, where the, the scholar Du Bois ended and the organizer Du Bois began. The two qualities in him were a single unified force. This lifestyle of Dr. Du Bois is the most important quality this generation of Negroes needs to emulate. The educated Negro who is not really part of us and the angry militant who fails to organize us have nothing in common with Dr. Du Bois. He exemplified black power in achievement and he organized black power in action. It was no abstract slogan to him. We cannot talk of Dr. Du Bois without recognizing that he was a radical all of his life. Some people would like to ignore the fact that he was a communist in, later, in his later years. It is worth noting that Abraham Lincoln warmly welcomed the support of Karl Marx during the Civil War and corresponded with him freely. In contemporary life, the English speaking world has no difficulty with the fact that Sean O'Casey was a literary giant of the 20th century and a communist, or that Pablo Nareda is generally considered the greatest living poet, though he also served in the Chilean Senate as a communist. 
it is time to cease muting the fact that Dr. Du Bois was a genius and chose to be a communist. Our irrational, obsessive, anti-communism has led us into too many quagmires to be retained as if it were a mode of scientific thinking. In closing, it would be well to remind white America of its debt to Dr. Du Bois. When they corrupted Negro history, they distorted American history because Negroes are too big a part of the building of this nation to be written out of it without destroying scientific history. White America, drenched with lies about Negroes, has lived too long in a fog of ignorance. Dr. Du Bois gave them a gift of truth for which they should eternally be indebted to him. Negroes have heavy tasks today. We were partially liberated and then re-enslaved. We have to fight again on old battlefields, but our confidence is greater, our vision is clearer, and our ultimate victory surer because of the contributions a militant, passionate, Black giant left behind him. Dr. Du Bois has left us, but he has not died. The spirit of freedom is not buried in the grave of the valiant. He will be with us when we go to Washington in April to demand our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have to go to Washington because they have declared an armistice in the war on poverty while squandering billions to expand a senseless, cruel, unjust war in Vietnam. We will go there. We will demand to be heard, and we will stay until the administration responds. If this means forcible repression of our movement, we will confront it, for we have done this before. If this means scorn or ridicule, we will embrace it, for that is what America's poor now receive. If it means jail, we will accept it willingly for the millions of poor already are imprisoned by exploitation and discrimination. Dr. Du Bois would be in the front ranks of the peace movement today. He would readily see the parallel between American support of the corrupt and despised Tukai regime and, and Northern support to the Southern slave masters in 1876. The CIA scarcely exaggerates. Indeed, it is surprisingly honest when it calculates for Congress that the war in Vietnam can persist for 100 years. People deprived of their freedom do not give up. Negroes have been fighting more than 100 years, and even if the date of full emancipation is uncertain, what is explicitly certain is that the struggle for it will endure. In conclusion, let me say, that Dr. Du Bois's greatest virtue was his committed empathy with all the oppressed and his divine dissatisfaction with all forms of injustice. Today, we are still challenged to be dissatisfied. Let us be dissatisfied until every man can have food and material necessities for his body, culture and education for his mind, freedom and human dignity for his spirit, let us be dissatisfied until rat-infested, vermin-filled slums will be a thing of, the, of a dark past and every family will have a decent sanitary house in which to live. Let us be dissatisfied 
until the empty stomachs of Mississippi are filled and the idle industries of Appalachia are revitalized. Let us be dissatisfied until brotherhood is no longer a meaningless word at the end of a prayer, but the first order of business on every le legislative agenda. Let us be dissatisfied until our brother of the third world, Asia, Africa, and Latin America will no longer be the victim of imperialist exploitation, but will be lifted from the long night of poverty, illiteracy, and disease. Let us be dissatisfied until this pending cosmic elegy will be transformed into a creative psalm and peace and justice will roll down like waters from a mighty stream. Martin Luther King Jr. Thank you, uh, Julian, for that uh, beautiful reading. Uh, and now we'll have uh, Divya. She's also going to be reading an excerpt from a sermon and presenting a musical selection. Thank you, Jahan. Um, thank you, Julian. Um, so I would like to read from an excerpt um, and then uh, finish with uh, a spiritual in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whose birthday we are observing today at the Free School. Um, I thought I would begin actually with um, a different excerpt before I proceed into, um, I've been to the mountaintop, the final speech that Dr. King gave in Memphis, Tennessee before he was assassinated. Um, so the first excerpt is from a piece by an early 20th century Chinese scholar, Tan Yanshan, who was the founder of China Bhavan in Shantiniketan, which we've talked a lot about at the free school. Um, and Shantiniketan was established by Rabindranath Tagore. Um, Tan Yanshan delivered a message to Gandhiji, whose nonviolent movement inspired him greatly. Gandhiji said, quote, when two nations are fighting, the duty of a votary of Ahimsa is to stop the war. And at a time when war is privileged at the expense of bread and peace, particularly between India and China, and both of these civilizations in the West, um, I think Dr. King would stand for peace. Um, so before I begin, uh, Professor Tan Yanshan's uh, in a book called Ahimsa in Sino-Indian Culture says, if the question be asked, what is the main thing in common between India and China? I would answer, it is our common culture. If it be further asked, what are the chief characteristics of this common Indian and Chinese cultures? My unhesitating answer would be, it is Ahimsa, culture in my humble opinion, and to put it very simply, is the cultivation of the whole of human life and not only the spiritual side of civilization as it is usually regarded. It is the compass as well as the pilot of the progress of human society. It gives significance to human life and distinguishes human life from that of plants and animals. It helps man to realize at the first stage, the real meaning and value of life and ultimately reach its real goal in which alone there is eternal peace, love, joy, freedom, and blessing. 
In this respect, there is not only much similarity, but much identity between the culture of India and that of China. The most striking feature and analogy of these two cultures is the spirit of Ahimsa. And now I will read from Dr. King's sermon. I've been to the mountaintop. Um, he was leading a march with sanitation workers um, in Memphis. And um, shortly thereafter, he left us. I'm delighted to see each of you here tonight in spite of a storm warning. You reveal that you are determined to go on anyhow. Something is happening in Memphis. Something is happening in our world. And you know, if I were standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now, and the almighty said to be Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight to Egypt and I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through or rather across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, on toward the promised land. And in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus. And I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assembled around the Parthenon. And I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discussed the great and eternal issues of reality. But I wouldn't stop there. I would go on even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire, and I would see developments around there through various emperors and leaders, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the day of the Renaissance and get a quick picture of all the Renaissance did for the cultural and aesthetic life of man. But I wouldn't stop there. I would even go by the way that that man for whom I'm named had his habitat. And I would watch Martin Luther as he tacks his 95 thesis on the door of the church of Wittenberg. But I wouldn't stop there. I would come on up even to 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. But I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the early 30s and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. But I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to just live a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick, trouble is in the land, confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up and wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, 
Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just wanna do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. When Israel was in Egypt land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. So the Lord said, go down, Moses, way down in Egypt, let tell old Pharaoh, let my Let my people go. He made old Pharaoh understand. Let my people go and let go down. Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell old Pharaoh. Let my people go. Thus spoke the Lord, bold Moses said, Let my people go. If not, I'll smite your firstborns dead. Let my people go. And the God said, Blow down, Moses, way down in Egypt, land. Tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my 
Thank you, Divya, for sharing those important, heartfelt words with us. Now uh, we'll have uh, Meghna, uh, who uh, present a uh, selection from India, uh, and then present a musical piece as well. Good morning, everyone. Um, I wanted to read a speech uh, that was a tribute to Martin Luther King by uh, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi that she delivered to uh, she delivered uh, the, the award, the Jawaharlal Nehru Award for International Understanding to Coretta Scott King um, in Delhi uh, on January 24th, 1969. And I just add that I think this is part of a longer history of close collaboration and correspondence between the Kings and the Nehru family. Um, like Dr. King went to India earlier and he and uh, Jawaharlal Nehru talked about India's development, you know, the road that, what road would India take, what road would uh, darker peoples seeking to self-determine their own destiny, uh, how would they understand the future and fight for the future. Um, and so, uh, so I think she also gave this speech reflecting on the assassination of Dr. King. Um, so uh, I will, I'll, I'll read this. This is a poignant moment for all of us. We remember vividly your last visit to our country. We had hoped that on this occasion, Dr. King and you would be standing side by side on this platform. That was not to be. He is not with us, but we feel his spirit. We admire Dr. King. We felt his loss as our own. The tragedy rekindled memories of the great martyrs of all time who gave their lives so that men might live and grow. We thought of the great men in your own country who fell to the assassin's bullet and of Mahatma Gandhi's martyrdom here in this city this very month, 21 years ago. Such events remain as wounds in the human consciousness, reminding us of battles yet to be fought and tasks still to be accomplished. We should not mourn for men of high ideals. Rather, we should rejoice that we had the privilege of having them, having had them with us to inspire us by their radiant personalities. So today we are gathered not to offer you grief, but to salute a man who achieved so much in so short a time. It is befitting, Madame, that you whom he called the courage by my side, you who gave him strength and encouragement in his historic mission, should be with us to receive this award. You and your husband both had foreseen that death might come to him violently. It was perhaps inherent in the situation. Dr. King chose death for the theme of a sermon, remarking that he would like to be remembered as a drum major for justice, for peace and for righteousness. When you were once asked what you would do if your husband were assassinated, you were courage personified replying that you might weep, but the work would go on. Your face of sorrow, so beautiful in its dignity, coupled with infinite compassion, will forever be engraved in our hearts. Mahatma Gandhi also had foreseen his end and had prepared himself for it. Just as training for violence, including learning to kill, the training for nonviolence, he said, included learning how to die. The true badge of the Satyagrahi is to be unafraid. As if he too had envisioned the martyrdoms of Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King, 
Rabindranath Tagore once sang, in anger we slew him, with love let us embrace him now, for in death he lives again amongst us, the mighty conqueror of death. This award, madam, is the highest tribute our nation can bestow on work for understanding and brotherhood among men. It is named after a man who himself was a peacemaker and who all his life labored passionately for freedom, justice, and peace in India and throughout the world. Dr. Martin Luther King's struggle was for the same values. He paid for his ideals with his blood, forging a new bond among the brave and the conscientious of all races of all nations. Dr. King's dream embraced the poor and oppressed of all lands. His work ennobled us. He spoke of the right of man to survive and recognized three threats to the survival of man, racial injustice, poverty, and war. He realized that even under the lamp of affluence, which was held aloft by science, lay the shadow of poverty, compelling two thirds of the people of the world to exist in hunger and want. He proclaimed that mankind could be saved from war only if we cared enough for peace to sacrifice it. Dr. King drew his inspiration from Christ and his method of action from Mahatma Gandhi. Only through truth can untruth be vanquished. Only through love can hatred be quenched. This is the path of the Buddha, of Christ, and in our own times, of that of Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King. They believed in the equality of all men. No more false doctrine has been spread than that of superiority of one race over another. It is ironical that there should still be people in this world who judge men, not by their moral worth and intellectual merit, but by the pigment of their skin or other physical characteristics. Some governments still rest on the theory of racist superiority, such as the governments of South Africa and the lawless regime in Rhodesia. Unregenerate groups in other countries consider one color superior to another. Our own battle is not yet over. Caste and other prejudices still survive, but most of us are ashamed of them and recognize them as evils to be combated. We are trying hard to eradicate them. While there is bondage anywhere, we ourselves cannot be fully free. While there is oppression anywhere, we ourselves cannot soar high. Martin Luther King was convinced that one day the misguided people who believe in racial superiority would realize the error of their ways. His dream was that white and black, brown and yellow would live and grow together as flowers in a garden with their faces turned towards the sun. As you yourself said, all of us who believe in what Martin Luther King stood for must see to it that his spirit never dies. That spirit can never die. There must be setbacks in our fight for the equality of all men. There may be moments of gloom, but victory must and will be ours. Let us not rest until the equality of all races and religions become a living fact. That is the most effective and lasting tribute that we can pay to Dr. King. Uh, and the song I'm going to sing is, uh, it's a poem, it's a ghazal by uh, the Pakistani poet Fez Ahmed Fez. And uh, the song basically is talking about the day when, uh, the day that's religiously written in Islam when the oppressed will uh, rise and tear down the government of the oppressor. And this is the justice uh, of Islam. This is the justice of um, the Sufi poets who said, I am the truth. One day we'll have 
uh, a government where made up of the people of God. Um, so I'll sing. Hum dekhenge, hum dekhenge. Lazim hai ke hum bhi dekhenge, hum dekhenge. Modin ke jiska vada hai, hum dekhenge. जब जुल्मो सितम के कोहे जब जुल्मो सितम के कोहे जब जुल्मो सितम के कोहे गरा रूही की तरह उड़ जाएंगे हम महकूमों के पाओ तले ये दर्दी दड़ 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 के जब अर्जे खुदा के काबे से जब अर्जे खुदा के काबे से सब पुछुटवाए जाएंगे हम अहले सफा मरदूद हरम मसनत पे बिठाए जाएंगे सब ताजे उछाले जाएंगे सब ताजे उछाले जाएंगे सब तख्त गिराए जाएंगे सब ताजे उछाले जाएंगे सब तख्त गिराए जाएंगे हम देखेंगे बस नाम रहेगा अल्लाह का बस नाम रहेगा अल्लाह का जो गायब भी है नाजिर भी जो मंजर भी है नाजिर भी उठेगा नलहक का नारा उठेगा नलहक का नारा जो मैं भी हूँ तुम भी हो उठेगा नलहक का नारा 
हम देखेंगे मोदिन के जिसका वादा है हम देखेंगे हम देखेंगे लाजिम है के हम भी देखेंगे हम देखेंगे लाजिम है के हम भी देखेंगे हम देखेंगे performance and I think of all of what we're seeing today I mean it shows the international and intercivilizational significance of uh, Dr. King and uh, on that note uh, our the final part of uh, our official program is going to be uh, Emily Dong who is going to read a tribute to King from the People's Republic of China. So this um this statement by Mao Zedong was written on April 16th, 1968. So a few, a couple of weeks after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination and it's titled, A New Storm Against Imperialism. Some days ago, Martin Luther King, the Afro-American clergyman was suddenly assassinated by the US imperialists. Martin Luther King was an exponent of nonviolence. Nevertheless, the US imperialists did not on that account show any tolerance toward him, but used counter-revolutionary violence and killed him in cold blood. This has taught the broad masses of the black people in the United States a profound lesson. It has touched off a new storm in their struggle against violent repression sweeping well over a hundred cities in the United States, a storm such as has never taken place before in the history of that country. It shows that an extremely powerful revolutionary force is latent in the more than 20 million Black Americans. The storm of Afro-American struggle taking place within the United States is a striking manifestation of the comprehensive political and economic crisis now gripping U.S. imperialism. It is dealing a telling blow to U.S. imperialism, which is beset with difficulties at home and abroad. The Afro-American struggle is not only a struggle waged by the exploited and oppressed Black people for freedom and emancipation, it is also a new clarion call to all the exploited and oppressed people of the United States to fight against the barbarous rule of the monopoly capitalist class. It is a tremendous aid and inspiration to the struggle of the people throughout the world against US imperialism and to the struggle of the Vietnamese people against US imperialism. On behalf of the Chinese people, I hereby express resolute support for the just struggle of the Black people in the United States. Racial discrimination in the United States is a product of the colonialist and imperialist system. The contradiction between the Black masses in the United States and the US ruling circles is a class contradiction. Only by overthrowing the reactionary rule of the US monopoly capitalist class in destroying the colonialist and imperialist system, can Black people in the United States win complete emancipation? 
the black masses and masses of white working people in the United States have common interests and common objectives to struggle for. Therefore, the Afro-American struggle is winning sympathy and support from increasing numbers of white working people and progressives in the United States. The struggle of black people in the United States is bound to merge with the American workers movement. And this will eventually end the criminal rule of the US monopoly capitalist class. In 1963, in, in the statement supporting the Afro-Americans and their just struggle against racial discrimination by US imperialism, I said that, quote, the evil system of colonialism and imperialism arose and throve with the enslavement of Negroes and the trade in Negroes. And it will surely come to its end with the complete emancipation of black people. I still maintain this view. At present, the world revolution has entered a great new era. The struggle of black people in the United States for emancipation is a component part of the general struggle of all people of the world against US imperialism, a component part of the contemporary world revolution. I call on the workers, peasants and revolutionary intellectuals of all countries and all who are willing to fight against US imperialism to take action and extend strong support to the struggle of the black people in the, in the United States. People of the whole world, unite still more closely and launch a sustained and vigorous offensive against our common enemy, US imperialism and its accomplices. It can be said with certainty that the complete collapse of colonialism, imperialism, and all systems of exploitation, and the complete emancipation of all oppressed peoples and nations of the world are not far off. Thank you, Emily, for reading that tribute uh, from China. And uh, now I think I would like to invite all those uh, watching to uh, for their comments on on the things which we've read out and and perhaps uh, we can also get into a, a bit of a discussion uh, of, of of the different pieces which were read um, and I would just like to start by saying that I think all the pieces that we've read and and particularly I think uh, the last one that Emily read are very important um, because and very relevant to today uh, and at the end of that speech, Mao struck a very optimistic note about the, the end of US imperialism and the emancipation of the peoples of the world. And uh, we began this program today by talking about how we are in a period of historic crisis within the US ruling class. This uh, small handful of people who you could call the US monopoly class are increasingly isolated uh, among the masses of black, white, and other uh, working people. And uh, something, I'm reminded of something which we've often discussed in preschool, which is that figures like Martin Luther King for us are not just figures of the mid 20th century. He's for us as much a figure of the 21st century. His ideas are as relevant, his ideas of uh, engaging with Africa and Asia, of the struggle for world peace, of a revolution of values among uh, many others. And, uh, in this time of crisis, I mean, where else can we turn in uh, American history? Which other leader is there available to us who can help us to resolve the contradictions uh, facing us other than uh, Dr. Martin Luther King? And uh, 
part of, I think, what we're attempting to do as well by reading his own words and the words of what different revolutionaries had said about him is to cut through the kind of artificial plastic uh, figure that's presented to us in history and look at the real king uh, directly from the source. So uh, I'd like to say, well, Doc, would you like to uh, say anything? I just want to listen. <laughs> okay. Or uh, Michelle as well, if you... I'd like to respond to any of the things that you. Uh, yeah, I can start. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard in some ways to believe that we're coming up on a year of having the free school online and having these live streams. And um, I think something that does feel different about having it online is, you know, we, we miss that spirit of being, you know, in the church of the advocate, being together every week and coming back to King, um, you know, this weekend. And I think his birthday, his birth anniversary was yesterday. Um, it just, like you said, Jahan, it feels so timely because we need, um, we, this is a time when we're looking for that renewal of uh, the spirit. Um, going back to King's legacy to see this blueprint, which he has for a new America, but then also a united and a peaceful world. And um, I also really enjoy just listening to everyone speak and perform. And um, it draws on some of that, you know, that, that spiritual, moral, you know, very moral energy that we share when, when we're able to meet in person. And so uh, I, I'm a little bit still just processing it. I'm sure I'll have more to say in a little, but um, yeah, it's 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 really beautiful, and I'm um, I'm glad we could be together for this. Um, yeah. Well, to add on to what you're saying, Michelle, like I think we're struggling for the human being, and. Um, like the songs, me and Jacob were kind of like, with, with Meg's song, like every time we under uh, hear it, we feel like we understand it better. Um, and I think when Julian was reading um, King and he was noting how, or, you know, Du Bois as the man, you know, and his dedication um, to his pe to people to the people, um, you know, to be principled, um, but also like, like, you know, using what he knows for humanity. And um, that for me, like to be able to stand for the truth, to know the truth and uh, it, well, I guess, that I, that's just what caught me of what you're talking about, Michelle, because when you're struggling for humanity, like you have to be tied to what is going on in reality. And, you know, um, I mean, to stand for the truth is not what is normal right now or is not what is comfortable. Um, but there's always, um, there all, there's always truth to stand on. That is where the, you know, where this whole, why I like the free school is as strong as it is, what I believe, you know, um, because we're looking at this whole world, you know, with China and India and um, Afro-America or here um, to say, um, but yeah, I also like this, 
this or thinking about like how this event is being framed to study or to uh, celebrate um, King because um, I guess the stand for peace and for the truth is also to um, be a part of the world, um, you know, and that's in turn why you stand for humanity because that's, you know, being in the world, that kind of thing. If I'm being clear, I don't know if I am, but yeah. No, one, one thing I just wanted to add to that is um, I really feel like reading, actually reading his speeches, which I think so few people do on his birthday, you know, they don't actually read what he said. And I, I think you'll like what you get from it is like what you're saying, that dedication to the truth, standing for something, even when it's unpopular, being on the side of the poor and the oppressed. What does that mean in our times? What does that really mean? Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean fitting in with the mainstream, with what's being adapted on Netflix as a, you know, as, as anti-racism, but it means actually looking at the world and um, making a choice. And how would Dr. King have understood these events? I'm mean, not just from this smug liberal place of superiority, but he would have really tried to understand it from the perspective of the poor and oppressed of this country who have been uh, you know, who have been suffering for too long. Um, so yeah, I mean, also the, the willingness to die for your beliefs. I think that's really, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, Michelle said also about um, just thinking about being back in the church and uh, it's obviously not lost on us today that celebrating Martin Luther King, we're celebrating someone who was deeply connected to the churches and the society and that there's a deep Christ, spiritual crisis, uh, which is accompanying the economic crisis uh, in the times in which we live. And we, we try to be in, uh, in terms of build, in terms of thinking about how a movement can, an alternative movement can be built. We try to be very attentive to churches and other spiritual institutions of the people uh, and about how uh, that impacts their life worlds. And additionally, um, thinking about how King would view uh, the, the situation today, uh, I'm reminded of something I came across recently, his uh, speech, which he gave at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March. Um, as you saw from the his speech on Dr. Du Bois, King was really a great intellectual and philosopher he was very widely read. And in the Summit to Montgomery speech in uh, 1965, he was uh, citing a book by a historian, C. Van Woodward, called The Strange Career of Jim Crow. And he pointed out how that book was important because uh, Woodward challenged the idea that segregation was a natural outcome and looked at how segregation was imposed to divide the working class in the South and um, keep wages low and empower this reactionary uh, elite. And at the end of the speech, he says, uh, it may be said of the slavery era that the white man took the world and gave the Negro Jesus. Then it may be said of the reconstruction era that the Southern aristocracy took the world and gave the poor white man Jim Crow. He gave him Jim Crow. And when his wrinkled stomach cried out for the food that his empty pockets could not provide, he ate Jim Crow a psychological bird that told him no matter how bad off he was, at least he was a white man, better than the black man. And he ate Jim Crow. 
And when his undernourished children cried out for the necessities that his low wages could not provide, he showed them the Jim Crow signs on the buses and in the stores, on the streets and in the buildings. And his children too learned to feed upon Jim Crow, their last outpost of psychological oblivion. Um, and I mentioned that because it shows that King was very, very attentive to the psychological, spiritual, and economic state, not only of the poor black, but the poor white. He's very attentive to it. He, he tried to understand it scientifically. And he understood that this was a very important question for the civil rights movement and of course, for the future of the country. And if, I think if he were alive today, he would try very hard to understand where the poor white is now. The things which we're seeing, this kind of poor and, and I mean, increasingly even other parts of, of the white community that are, that are being pushed downwards, uh, the depressed classes that were, how are they reacting? What does it mean that they're so angry with the ruling elite? What does it mean that they're marching in such large numbers uh, in Washington? And uh, he wouldn't, as Megna was saying, go with the kind of knee-jerk uh, analysis which is being put out in the media. And he would try to understand what does it mean in a society where there's no more official Jim Crow, in a, what's supposed to be a multicultural and diverse society where you have black and white uh, children crying out in hunger and their parents, you know, frustrated, struggling, panicking on, on what to do. What, this kind of desperation, uh, he would really try to understand it. And as we know, at the end of his life, uh, he was very committed to building a serious uh, poor people's movement, which in fact was marching to the Capitol steps. Uh, so I think that's the serious question he, he, he presents us with today. Something I, I'm thinking about. Yeah, I actually think, um, like I, ha I had read King's tribute to Du Bois before in a couple of times, but hearing Julian read it this time, it brought out a lot. And I think maybe also because we've been talking about how Du Bois in Russian America is talking, and this is something you said, Doc, in, a art in the article you just wrote about how actually in today, there's kind of a, I guess, dusk of dawn or a new era being born. But at the very end of King's tribute to Du Bois, when Julian, you were reading it, when he talks about how um, today we're still challenged to be dissatisfied. Um, and he says, let us be dissatisfied until the empty stomachs of Mississippi are filled and the idle industries of Appalachia are revitalized. Let us be dissatisfied until brotherhood is no longer a meaningless word at the end of a prayer, but the first order of business on every legislative agenda. Let us be dissatisfied until our brother of the third world, Asia, Africa, and Latin America will no longer be the victim of imperialist exploitation, but will be lifted from the long night of poverty, illiteracy, and disease. Um, and that's so, I feel like he truly is a Du Boisian, but also such a revolutionary inheritor of so much that Du Bois in some ways was laying out at the end of his life. Um, and I know a lot of, I think a lot of people like to talk about King at the last years of his life as that he was depressed or, you know, so surveillance and giving up, challenged by a lot of different sides. But actually, like the way he's speaking at this tribute to Du Bois 
And then also what you were reading Divya too, how he was saying, I would go to Egypt. If I could go anywhere, I'd go to Egypt. I'd cross the world. I'd understand history and see how like today there's a pendulum of humanity heading towards justice. He's not depressed. He like, you know, there are real challenges, but I think he's so Du Boisian, Du Boisian in that way where he could always see a way out um, and such faith in humanity and just these masses of working people and black Americans in particular. Um, and I think the last thing that all of the readings say really brought out was, I, I haven't read this before, but I know Du Bois has this phrase that um, black America has given humanity the gift of spirit. And I feel like in some ways King is an exemplification of that, you know, just this gift of a revolutionary spirit and how that can allow you to see a way out to understand like the movement, what humanity is marching towards, like not just in America, but across what King called the third world and the possibilities of principled unity between blacks and whites um, in America um, to eliminate poverty and increase literacy to eliminate illiteracy and all of that. And I don't know, it was so, hearing all of, all the speeches um, this morning and the songs as well, it was, it really put things together. Just what, what you were saying, Doc, about how the dusk of dawn and a new era of humanity being born. And I feel like I never realized how much of that is in, was in King's words at the end of his life. You know, uh, having been alive at that time, um, it was a, it was traumatic for the African American community, the assassination of Martin Luther King, but it moved the world progressive forces deeply. And I'm certain if we uh, sought it out, we could find, you know, of course, the wonderful statement of Indira Gandhi, who has been erased and dismissed in her own country the greatest governmental leader in Indian history. Uh, of course, Mao Zedong, the leader of the Chinese revolution. I'm certain that Fidel Castro, Ho Chi Minh, uh, um, Kim Il-sung, uh, of course, the leaders of East Germany and of um, the Soviet Union, the whole world heaped praise upon him and saw him as a comrade and brother in a common struggle for peace and freedom. And they weren't just uh, idle words. They, it was deeply felt. Uh, I, you know, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the HBO documentary called King in the Wilderness. And I think it's one of the best documentaries about Martin Luther King and it deals with the last 18 months of his life. And there's one part that really was moving to me, uh, and that is when um, Harry Belafonte, the great freedom fighter, uh, cultural figure, uh, and other things, uh, talked about how King, when he was in New York, would usually stay at he and his wife's apartment and he talked about how King had developed this nervous twitch. And, you know, he couldn't explain why he was doing it. Uh, and um, on one occasion, King came to stay at 
Belafonte and his wife's apartment in New York. And um, uh, Harry Belafonte noticed that King didn't have the twitch anymore. And he, he said to him, he said, Martin, you don't have that nervous twitch anymore. What happened? He said, I've, I've come to terms with my own death. And it was the fear of death that was causing this nervousness uh, that became embedded in his body. And once he overcame the fear of death, there was nothing else to fear. And um, throughout his life, King was savagely attacked from all sides. Um, the white racist side, of course, you know, because he's leading the movement in the heart of reaction in the American South. Uh, but then uh, he's attacked uh, by uh, Northern moderates and Southern moderates, we call liberals today, who said, you're going too fast. Um, you have to go slower. Uh, and it is that question that he addresses in the famous uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. But he was also attacked uh, by black people. Um, that nonviolent uh, uh, resistance was a form of a way of psychologically disarming black people. Um, you know, that um, uh, they were using a certain reading of Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. Uh, and uh, then you had a neo-Garveyite uh, trend, which said that uh, King's call for unity of all the oppressed and, and their allies um, was necessary. And of course, you know, King widened it to the world community. They said, uh, the Garveyites argued uh, that this again disarmed black people and it made them subservient to white people. Uh, uh, then there was a, um, uh, a sectarian Marxist Trotskyite attack upon King, which argued that he was nothing but a bourgeois liberal who wanted to compromise the struggle for freedom of black people and um, undermine the growing revolutionary consciousness of black people. Uh, then there, if you don't mind just cataloging this, uh, then there was, you know, all of these uh, small kind of so-called revolutionary guerrilla organizations, underground guerrilla organizations, which I myself was attracted to for a little while, uh, which uh, was saying that um, uh, the path to freedom is um, um, urban guerrilla warfare. And they took Mao's slogan, all power comes out of the barrel of the gun and, um, and so on. And so it was attacked continually on that side. But then the government, the infiltration of the civil rights movement, agent provocateurs, and the government can, this is the height of the Cold War, you have to remember the anti-communist scare. Um, and the, they, uh, they were saying that 
Martin Luther King was a tool of communists and of the Soviet Union to bring down America. Uh, and they were pointing out if there were, if there were two communists in the civil rights movement, that meant that King was controlled by this hidden hand of communism. But then finally, in the speech uh, praising Du Bois, where he takes on this issue forthrightly, because you know, Du Bois was silenced even after his death in 1963. Uh, and it was not until the collapse of the Soviet Union that it became, and I put quotes around this, permissible in universities to have courses, and there's still not enough, by the way, or to have uh, scholars write or think about Du Bois are still not enough. You know, we're not out of the woods, the anti-communist woods. But King is the first time that a major civil rights or black leader at the height of the Cold War had so embraced Du Bois and then challenged the anti-communism that silenced Du Bois. And that is very, very significant, especially when he says, you know, Picasso and Pablo Neruda and Sean O'Casey. Why is it all right for them, but not for Du Bois? Um, and, and as he said, I just want to repeat, you know, like he said, well, you know, but first of all, above and beyond everything, whatever his political choices were, but above and beyond everything, he believed in black people. This is huge. And that's the key. The belief in the oppressed. And so whatever political strategies are chosen, you, you, you know it's on the basis of principle and honesty. And that's what uh, Du Bois was saying. And of course, the speech on Du Bois, that's what King was saying, I'm sorry. The speech on Du Bois was given about, about uh, eight or nine months. Uh, he gives a speech on a time to break silence. Why I oppose the war in Vietnam. This is huge. And he asked the question, King asked the question, and who made America the policeman of the whole world? Challenging, this is very interesting because this challenge continues today. The post-war Western imperialist consensus, the idea that the West must dominate the world and the darker nations of the world. And King asked the question, and who made you the moral policeman of the whole world? He went on to say uh, that, the, that the United States, his own government, is the major purveyor of violence in the world. Um, that speech, 
divided the civil rights and progressive movements because people said, King, civil rights and peace don't mix. The peace movement was viewed as a hippie movement, a youth movement. Civil rights was a different kind of movement, you know? King brought the two together and he said, without peace, there can't be justice. Um, and Mao Zedong is right. King was assassinated by the ruling class and we all know it. Um, and he was assassinated because they understood the enormous potential to shift the ideological center of the country away from war and towards peace, away from white supremacy and towards justice. Um, he was, and, and he should be celebrated. He must be celebrated. The totality of his life, there's some people who say, well, I, I, we are, I'm celebrating this, this, and the other of Martin Luther King. No, celebrate the man. And the man that we are celebrating was nourished and nurtured in the deep womb of the black community in Atlanta, Georgia, the South, in the black church. We're celebrating everything about Martin Luther King. He was always courageous. He was always prepared to stand up for principle. And we are very fortunate to have his legacy, just like Indira Gandhi said. He's physically dead, but his legacy lives on. And I think his legacy can help to clarify the contradictions that define the existential crisis of the American political system at this time. We have a comment from Sophie Hurt. She writes, everything read and performed today was incredibly moving. King's mountaintop speech is especially chilling because he bravely accepted his death and the risks of his commitment to the freedom struggle. His words to those men and women in Memphis brought out the faith, hope, and strength of the people rather than fear and anxiety. And uh, it was really powerful to hear um, those words today, um, especially the fact that he talked about, essentially he was saying that there are many periods in history he would like to see, but he would, uh, there is no place he would rather be than where he was. And as Doc was saying, the fact that he had accepted uh, his, his death um, is a whole nother level of courage and, and uh, bravery. I mean, the kind, that's the kind of spirit that can really change history. And uh, much of what we see, I mean, we are often critical of activism today because we don't see any of that kind of, of seriousness or, or, or spirit uh, within it. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of the things which Doc had mentioned, I think are also very important about the fact that uh, for us, any serious left in this country has to be very deeply engaged with Martin Luther King. I mean, it's been a profound weakness of left and progressives who've tried to abandon King or tried to minimize King 
or tried to say he was just a person of that time or et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's really crippled, I think, progressive, anything seriously progressive uh, in the society uh, because he's such a monumental, uh, gigantic figure. Um, you can't apply these academic ideas of, oh, great man, or you know, these attacks upon leadership. Um, he, you know, because when you, when you see as someone who's so, such a historic, world historical figure in that way, as Doc was saying, rising from these modest circumstances to become someone who is admired by statesmen and women and uh, revolutionaries around the world. I mean, that's the best that American society, African-American society has produced. Yeah. yeah, I mean, also this tradition of um, like deeply intellectual, uh, well-educated, well-read people um, who just have the world at their feet and who understand so much, but taking that knowledge back to the people and making it enriched, making it uh, more meaningful, um, making it real, really making knowledge real. Um, that is also so missing today. Um, there's just such a gulf between so-called well-educated people and the masses of people. I mean, they're oppressors, they're not liberators, they're not educators, they're not teachers, they're, um, uh, they're, they're standing in the way right now um, to what people are trying to do, which is so different than um, Dr. King. Okay, well, I was just going to say, um, I also think it's really beautiful to see King as coming out of the tradition of Du Bois. And, you know, we started off today by, um, with Julian reading the speech honoring Dr. Du Bois. And um, yeah, kind of like Emily said, the discussions and the performances and the readings today are helping, you know, me kind of see King in a new light, especially given that we've been reading Du Bois the past few weeks kind of seeing them as a unified force in a way, because in some ways um, you could observe them as quite different men, maybe in character or personality. Um, they lived in very different historical moments, but what you said, Doc, about how, um, I mean, how, for example, like King was saying, Du Bois had to be understood that he was a radical all his life. Like he was exemplary because, um, he, he took these ideas, you know, he was a scholar, but then he married it with the concrete conditions and the achievements of the Black struggle. And that's exactly what King did as well, like highly ideological, highly intellectual, um, a philosopher, but then also a humanist, you know, like really the best um, in the way that he unified that. And um, yeah, it's, it's just really beautiful to see them as a part of that legacy. Um, um yeah you know that unified spirit that um yeah that i think that's mostly what i wanted to say um yeah you know um uh, this is uh you know that essay i know divya talks a lot about this my journey to nonviolence. This is very important, uh, building on what Michelle was just saying. In his, it's not just a journey to nonviolence, it is a journey away from Western civilization. 
and as well read as he was and as much as he appreciated Western philosophy, especially Hegel and Kant, classical German philosophy, he felt that it did not have the grounding to liberate people. That's the same conclusion that Du Bois reaches in Russia and America. I mean, it's not a put down, it's not a, a trashing of, uh, because King and um, Du Bois knew Western philosophy and knew it creatively, not dogmatically, uh, knew it in a way, a rich way. But each of them concluded that epistemologically and philosophically, there had to be a rupture. But it's also interesting that each of them felt that Karl Marx was the most important Western philosopher. But having said that, each of them moves towards Asia. It's so interesting. And so I know, you know, I've, um, Emily has made available to me her research with certain a couple, uh, well, one speech in particular, well, two speeches of uh, Xi Jinping, the president of China, one on civilization, Asian civilization, and what this means and how culture and civilization is as important as material relationships of production. I think that's something we have to think about, especially when King talked about a revolution of values, a revolution of culture, a revolution within civilization. I just want, just one last thing. I know a lot of people say, well, what would King, especially I would say the white liberal and the black bourgeoisie, what would King say about the situation we're in today? For me, that is not the question. I think the bigger question is, would we be in this situation if King had not been assassinated? That is the question. What would this country, this struggle, and this world look like if King had not been assassinated and his legacy, more than his physical assassination, and his legacy having been assassinated? What would the ideological relationships look like at this time? But I think the ground is fertile for a renaissance of King's thinking. Yeah, actually at the end of Russian America, when Du Bois talks about the logic of peace, um, like this is just going off of what you were saying about how Du Bois and King both realize that there has to be an, a rupture in philosophy um, and they move East. Where at the end of Russian America, Du Bois talks about how any civilization, whether it's Greece, Rome, Western civilization today, that's based on slavery, essentially the degradation mm -hmm. of the worker, um, mm -hmm. which war is used to, which war is meant to enforce or for that to occur, the degradation of worker to occur, that when a civilization is so torn by that kind of war, degradation of the worker, that it will become so unsustainable um, and that psychologically, culturally, in terms of people's hopelessness and disillusionment, that that civilization will have no choice but to fall apart and look East. 
go back to the cradle of human civilization in the East for moral authority, which I always thought was kind of interesting. Um, and in some ways I kind of see that as today, it's, I mean, people think of today, in some ways people think of um, the 20th century as peacetime, like certain after the 60s or something as peacetime, but really it's actually been endless wars. And so it reminded me what Du Bois was prophesizing, which is that any civilization, especially the West today, that has just faced endless wars and so much poverty, unemployment domestically and worldwide, that there will be no choice but for the people to be so cynical and hopeless that this civilization will have to look East or the people will have to look East. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> to, oh. Go ahead. To add to some of those thoughts, um, thank you again to everyone. Such um, provocative performances. And um, I, you know, what I, find so it's like with King you know the beauty of his truth and the truth of his beauty because everyone can feel it whether one is a capitalist or whether one is a communist or whether one is whatever ideologically, there's something about the example of the man, you know, that cuts through ideological positions to where you can see the unity of man, um, which is, um, you know, and it's like, I, I definitely think he um, had a critique of the West but what I love about him, and I think, um, you know, I, I even think uh, I, could, I could always point the finger to white people. I could always point the finger to America. I could point the finger to Europe. I, I could say, look what you did to me and, and my people. And I could do that all the time. And I've done that all the time for a long time. <laughs> And then I was like, well, does that change me? Does that make me feel human? Does the negation of another person in any way, I, could, I can possibly say yes or no to whether I agree with how they're living their life. But what I love about King was even though he has a critique of Western civilization, you see how he charts history. He never negates the dialectic. And I think this is a unique, um, if you will, um, transformation of the dialectic because in a Gandhian, I think, uh, um, conception of history because Marxism uh, conceptualizes the movement of history as the clash of forces, you know, lord and bondsman, oppressor and oppressed. And to a certain extent, this is true. But then when you look at someone like Jesus, 
when you look at someone like Buddha, when you look at someone like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, what do you make of such figures in history where they're not, they're not acting oppositionally, but more so that common human spirit is the, and the self-sacrifice, the self-sacrifice, which is at the base of um, a constructive program. So what I love about him is that he's constructive. He doesn't tear down and, um, you know, he, he is the Christian example of, you know, you say, can I have your coat to give him your cloak too? You know, it's ask a man to walk one mile, I'll walk two. And he's a witness as a soul. Like when I read that and it was like, here's this soul like the spiritual, my soul is a witness. Oh my Lord, his soul is a witness to these great civilizations rising and falling. But he's not saying I'm against, he's saying I am you. And that's just. You know, I think, can I just uh, build on it? Because this is a very important question because it's, it's a Du Boisian research issue, and it's a King research issue. It's not to discard the West or Western people or white people, as it were, but to recognize the limitations of Western civilization. And King did, and what Du Bois said is that the, the grounding, the roots being in slavery, which meant that labor could never fully be uh, appreciated, the working person. And you remember in America, Russia and America, Du Bois is so, uh, takes so much time to explain the dictatorship of the proletariat and what it would mean in the East as opposed to the West. The dictatorship, like he says, the question for Russia is can the working person be the foundation of the state and culture? But you have to respect labor. And what he says about the West, Western civilization, so rooted in slavery, Greece and Rome, and then going forward as we know, that civilizationally, perhaps culturally, labor has always been diminished. So what would the dictatorship of the proletariat look like in a civilization that has not come to grips with the, uh, or appreciated the, um, uh, the majesty of labor? as Du Bois did, and King. And I agree with you, Divya. Um, he gives every human being 
the option of choosing humanity or choosing oppression. You know, uh, he rejects the overdetermination that if you are this, then you can never be anything but that. And can I just respond quickly to that, um, which is that, um, you know, what it reminds me is that um, even labor can be tyrannical, Gandhi said. Because, and this is, this is the king piece and people like him. Because what they tell us is, I always go back to what he says about Marian Anderson, for example. He said, we all, like, it's now become almost like a commonplace in sociology and social policy, I think, to assume, oh, poverty causes, causes crime. And sometimes I think Du Bois even made that correlation. But what King says is correlation is not causation. You know, you could be very poor and extremely moral, and you could be very rich and extremely immoral. So, you know, theft happens amongst the rich, theft happens amongst the poor. Murder happens amongst the rich, murder happens amongst the poor. Now, the question is of motive, of human motive. And I do think, you know, labor can be leader in a time like this. But the question is also the question of character mm -hmm. and what King does through religion. Um, and I think, for me, religion is very important. A spiritual life um, is important because the thought produces the action, right? And if we can't think good, good won't manifest. You know, I, I often think of the, the proletarian revolutions that have happened, which have ended in violence. Um, and it always leaves that it, that residue of that group of people that then feels really like violated and then whoever on both sides, right? On labor and capital. And then, but that like sows the seeds of discord again for that dialect, the new dialectic. Now, someone like King comes along and says, no, change the heart. Labor be the example. Labor be self-sacrificing. Labor be selfless. Show the Christian planter, Christian, what Christianity is, what Hinduism is. And it's like, that is when you have labor, the people that you think are backward and uncivilized and are the ones that cause the Negro problem, when they start saying to the master, this is how you behave. It is so powerful because your, your character is unassailable. And even if you die, again, going back to Indira Gandhi's speech, which Meghna read, your example prevails. And that is the, I don't think it's in vain. I mean, why would we be here today? You know, if King were really dead, he's not. 
Yeah, I, it's interesting. I mean, there's a couple of different things I was thinking about, um, but even off that part of like labor, um, I was, I mean, I'm thinking about this whole thing of like, you know, it took a lot of uh, hard work. It took a lot of dedication to be, um, and sacrifice to be, uh, see if I can get my thoughts together on that point, um, but to sort of, uh, to struggle in this way uh, and to, to, you know, to, to sacrifice, you know, um, and I guess I'm trying to reconcile, Never mind. but for, for the, uh, but I was thinking about in terms of the whole, uh, the question of like, uh, um, or, or when, when King, I thought it was poignant when King was um, uh, pointing out um, after the, uh, when he, 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 tri- he, do, he does this tribute to um, Du Bois, right? And right at the end, he brings in this uh, struggle toward poverty. Because um, I can make this out the last part. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was so interesting um, because he, he, he frames his, um, his um, you know, or the, the, the march, um, uh, or what was it, the march against poverty? Or mm-hmm. um, the struggle against poverty? Um, he frames it and he puts it in this, and he puts it with this, uh, 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 this tribute to Du Bois. Um, and I think he actually really excellently, excellently um, puts his struggle with the uh, struggle that Du Bois lays out. You know, um, Du Bois being uh, the, the militant um, thinking man, you know, <laughs> um, you know, this, this sort of this harmony. Um, and I thought it was uh, really poignant because, you know, it's, it's, it's out of this tradition that Du Bois started. I think um, um, Emily and Michelle are pointing out a really good point um, when it comes to, you know, this, there, is a, there is a Du Boisian um, element um, in King. Um, and, you know, Du Bois um, laid out a, a, a deep foundation through a, a, a incredible hard work. And this is what I'm trying to reconcile from the whole labor uh, point, because there is a difference between labor and like, you know, um, like the, the ruling class, you know, um, labor, uh, I mean, uh, labor does have that, or I still can't. <laughs> So this is what something is I can't it? touch, um, but just that that labor um, has a or or there's this deep um, or there's this just you know you have to you have to or there, there's a difference you know um, for uh, in terms of being exploited you know um, and you know Du Bois lays out this um, incredible foundation that um, uh, you know King is building upon you know <laughs> it's it's out of the um, uh, you know it's out of the you know he, he draws life, um, uh, and and the str- and the struggles from the or uh, from the struggles of people, there is an enlivening effect, you know. Um, and I I do feel that you know um, the ru- a ruling class must be, um, uh, uh, it, it, it you know it can't not only behave the same way, but um, you know there has to be a, a, a deep uh, 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 sorry uh, a deep uh, re dist- or you know, just our whole reframing. I think the question, um, you know, um, if King hadn't died or, or, the, or if, what was the question that, that Doc asked? Um, it's not a question of what would King say, right? but had King lived, would we be in a crisis like this one? Exactly, exactly, exactly. We wouldn't, we wouldn't. King, I Maybe. mean, King is- Maybe, you know, Jake, there's a, you know, just not say that we wouldn't, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I would say they're, they're, rather than ask the question, what would King say today? Would we be where we are today if King had not been assassinated? That's what I was saying, you know. But you know, I think that's a, 
it just strikes me as uh, somehow wrong to say that the end of King is with his assassination. Mm -mm, I agree with that. No, and you know, because, because you're, right, you're right, he is then politically and ideologically assassinated. So we don't know King, but I agree with you. Right, because would you say that the life of Caesar ended with his assassination? Would you say the life of, you know, any person in history who did a great deed? Right. I mean, Jesus rises every day. You know, Krishna walks the earth. We believe these things, right? But it's not just, I think, like, you know, these, it's, it's the sense of history in us. Um, and um, love, just love. And, you know, it's up to us. You know, if King had lived, who knows? We can, we can, we can think about that always, if he had or if he hadn't. But um, we live, and he lives through us. And it's up to us. I mean, we're only. Ex I agree with you. There is a, you know, at, at least in terms of you know income and the material aspects of things there is a difference between the human beings on that side and on this side, but ultimately there is no difference. And I think that whatever that comes out of this struggle is to show, I am you and you are me. And it is what Baldwin said, in diminishing my humanity, you diminish yours. So how, why should there be a division as Christ said, thou shalt not make division. And I think that's the example King. Why he has universal appeal is because even to his worst enemy, and like Gandhi, Hitler, he wrote to Hitler and said, I would like to be your friend. You know, it's like, there's something to that. It's not because he was a Nazi or whatever. It's because he saw, you can only change another person through a positive action. When they are like a child, you can't tell them, oh, you're bad, you're wrong. They won't change. You have to be the good. That's all, yeah. Divya, I um, really appreciate the points you've been bringing up about sacrifice um, and thinking about King and Du Bois today. It actually reminded me a little bit of the free school's reading of Gandhi and of um, the story of, my, of experiments with the truth where you see in those opening chapters how Gandhi's preparing himself for sacrifice. He's preparing himself to not be connected to the materialism of the world. He's preparing himself to not use the resources or trappings that oftentimes would capture a person in his position. Um, and you know, you said, Divya, that like self-sacrifice self is at the root of it. Um, 
I think about that in the context of the struggle we all face within our respective worlds. Um, to effectuate the change we want and how we have to channel our own sacrifice as a way to teach others. Um, I think about sacrifice in, the connect in connection with the word love, right? Like, do you love your child if you don't sacrifice for them? I think most people would say no how do we translate this connection between love and sacrifice to the bigger questions at play in our search for ideological clarity is something I've been sitting with and trying to process. But uh, I just wanted to highlight that I, I really appreciated that point. Um, and King's, the dynamic of King's sacrifice is, is really what I'm sitting with as I, as I listen to folks today. Thank you, Julian. Just to add, I've been thinking about this thing of history, because that was repeated within Indira, with uh, the tribute. And can I, can you hear me? Sorry. If okay, yeah. Um, and like, what is history? And King was saying that history reflects the truth. And you know, he was also talking about how Du Bois was like, you know, like I said earlier, which I'm repeating, but. Um, using what he knows for the people and thus, you know, there's that trust, you know, you gain trust of the people. Um, and the same thing with like, with, uh, wait, 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 I didn't write it down. Mm -hmm. But um, I was just thinking about what is history and to know history and for people to know history. And I think like this ideological struggle thing is essential um, I guess to answering that question, because right now, like we're faced with so much baggage and garbage of the state, you know, imposing, um, you know, different ways to divide people from each other. And also um, this point that du, uh, King made about Du Bois not being a careerist, like really kind of stands out for me because um, like he, by using his talents, he created what he, you know, King was saying as an economic treatise, a work of art, you know, uh, a philosophical, I didn't really remember, but, you know, poetry and all these things um, that, you know, can stand with, you know, the largest of texts and whatnot, that kind of thing. Um, but to know history, to, you know, um, to struggle to know yourself, is also another idea that comes up with that. But um, I guess it comes to answer what you're kind of posing, Julian, which is what um, is almost like a what is to be done kind of thing in this moment of history um, is also to clarify these ideological, you know, confusion. Um, but that's why in turn, it makes sense to look at these historical figures because, you know, um, Doc is able to allow us to learn them in history and also alongside um, these different philosophical and ideological trends that were happening. And then 
it comes to a question of how is it that Kendi, for example, is so big? Um, yeah, when, you know, he's backwards. Mm -hmm. And it comes to, for me, a, uh, like, it answers why in the university, you know, we don't really learn and those kind of things. Um, but I think, like, it comes to a point where, like, the struggle for unity becomes difficult because, you know, um, like, studying or having us, for example, being able to meet every Saturday takes, a you know, a type of commitment um, to know the truth, which is, you know, it doesn't, you know, give you anything in terms of monetary worth and things like that. Um, but yeah, I guess more generally, I'm thinking about like these leftists and things, you know, but at the end of the day, like I am also trying to figure out like, what does it mean um, to move forward um, from this moment? Um, but I'll bring in some comments. Uh, Yvonne King writes, among so many things in Reverend King's tribute to Du Bois resonate with me personally, but I so appreciate his recognition of Du Bois's singular greatness laid in his quest for truth about his people. Not just anyone or any leader of that time could have written such a tribute to W.E.B. Du Bois, but King's commitment to black people and all of humanity and willingness to sacrifice for the freedom struggle enabled him to do so. Uh, Kathy Jung writes, deeply moved by everything we've shared so far about King today. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I realized the famous photo of Baldwin and King smiling shoulder to shoulder like brothers was taken at that very Carnegie Hall centennial tribute to Du Bois in February, 1968. Mm -hmm. Baldwin wrote that it was the last time he saw King before his assassination and his extended essays, No Name in the Street, throughout which he wrote about King's immense spiritual and moral contribution to the freedom struggle and to American civilization, among many things. From this, I'm understanding on a deeper level, Free School's commitment to understanding and implying the unified legacy of these three figures, Du Bois, King, and Baldwin, to today's moment of civilizational crisis. Uh, Max writes, I think Jahan's earlier point about King trying to get closer and understand the psychology of all the people of this country while attempting to unite the black, white, and Latino worker and the poor people's campaign is really important. Makes me think of how much indestructible love King had for humanity in the belief that all people, even the Southern white races, had the potential to transform into new and greater human beings. It's sad to see a left today that has completely capitulated to the propaganda of the ruling class and, and in uh, doing so lost the ability to see their countrymen as human beings right. and ultimately discredit and ignore half of America's population. I can't imagine this is a stance King would ever take. Mm -hmm. uh, Do Byun writes, I vaguely remember the Radical King Symposium last year where the panelists, except for Dr. Montero, basically attacked King. At free school, we have read King's speeches and sermons, 
and have come to very clear conclusions about his stance for peace and humanity. So at the symposium, I was a bit appalled and surprised that no one seemed to appreciate King, especially that comment by the moderator when he said that by the end of his life, everyone had hated King. What are the attacks on King today and where do these perspectives come from? Can I just say, I remember that, I remember that forum very, very well. And um, it was very difficult to sit through it and to be on a panel where people were, were saying in effect that King was uh, a, a moral hypocrite. Mm -hmm. You know, you remember uh, one, one of the panelists said, well, King was advocating for nonviolence, but his house was an arsenal of weapons. That's not true. Um, but they made it. And then, you know, the comment that at the end of his life, King was universally hated or disliked. You know, he was, he was hated by the ruling class, which tried to, uh, through propaganda and the media, to get people to feel that King had betrayed his country. Yeah, that was a difficult one. I, I remember that, and not pleasantly. And you could not hardly get a word in edgewise for all of the attacks. Um, and and they, I think there were those among them who wanted to attack King as being transphobic and homophobic and misogynist and, you know, everything that uh, really um, um, the ruling class and agent provocateurs have tried to, you know, uh, put out about King. And King, I think King has suffered more in death than he did in life, uh, you know, with the, with the attacks upon him. So I'm, I'm glad that person brought that up. Yeah, he also was asking like, what what are the attacks on King today and where do they come from? I think you you shared some of the important ones have to do with coming from things Africa. coming out of gender studies, basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that Selma movie and they show King as like beating Coretta Scott King because he's jealous of her meeting some nonsense. Like it depicts him as, it's just, and it's, they're trying to show, oh, look, even these great men, they were sexist. And, but it's just not true at all. I mean, it's not, it's so disrespectful to Coretta Scott King um, and the way that she honored his legacy and carried it on. Um, yeah, I mean, what Yvonne was saying about the truth, I mean, Coretta Scott King, the way that she didn't stop fighting and she was continuing to be a part of uh, uh, peace movements. She was taking very uh, unpopular stances she was calling for, uh, I think Emily had found this, she was calling for a national jobs program, oh, yeah. calling for mandatory employment of all people. And mm -hmm. I mean, part of the, if you just say, oh, King was a sexist, I mean, you're actually erasing Coretta Scott King um, and her legacy and her revolutionary um, uh, path. Um, yeah, I mean, the attacks are there to erase an actual uh, uh, political, um, legacy that we could follow today and solve so many of our problems. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think so much of the attacks on King have to do with the attacks on history. I mean, like King was saying in his uh, tribute to Du Bois, Du Bois, the great historian that hit, who 
believe the history must reflect the truth. And as King said, he believed history must reflect the truth. And so much as in movies, in media, newspapers, and then sadly, even in academia, people who are supposed to, supposedly experts on history are distorting um, the actual, the, the truth in that, in that way and trying to present some are in the name of complicating or nuancing. They're attacking King and putting all these false things on him or taking things out of context and so on uh, for a sinister agenda. And then there you have the, but then you also have the flip side. You have the people, the people who claim to be followers of King who are turning King, trying to turn King into some kind of, you know, patriotic American liberal, uh, you know, some, and trying to use King to advance their own political careers or their own agendas, a very depoliticized, de-radicalized uh, King. And so again, why it's so important to get to the truth, in order to get to the truth, you have to go to the source, you have to go yourself and uh, study what King said, actually said, what he actually um, did, how he thought about these things. And, and you'd be so surprised by the depths of his uh, thought and the depths of his being, I think. Um, you know, uh, I think everybody or most people in the free school know Nellie Bailey. And, but I don't think everybody knows Nellie's history. Uh, she's, in, she's from Alabama. And as a teenager, she joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So she knows all of these figures, including Martin Luther King. And I'm certain um, that what she would say about King's moral character, and that's where the attack is most cynical. Because what they, and, and this, this has occurred here in Philadelphia. There've been several King events, I won't name uh, the person responsible for them, where uh, people were horrified with uh, these people with a gender or transgender uh, agenda, and I call it an agenda, uh, attacking King. Uh, and attacking his moral integrity. And this is the deepest attack because King led with the moral principle, the uh, moral imperative. Uh, and that if, if humanity could live by a moral imperative, a moral grounding, humanity would look different. It's a long game, of course, but if you attack King as morally hypocritical, as morally dishonest, then you pull the rug out uh, from under his whole program because that's where he's coming from. It's not just the material conditions that he's trying to improve, although he's fighting for that because that's the moral thing to do. But he wants to improve the moral character of this nation of the world, you attack him on that, there's nothing left. And that's what the purpose is. Right. And you hear attacks on King more than you hear genuine uh, defenses of King. And I agree with you, Johan, even though, and I put quotes, the defenders of King are not defending King. It's like Barack Obama, you can't defend King because you were the opposite of King in every way. 
You are the opposite of King. I, you know, and if you don't mind me saying, John Lewis, um, in his youth, he was great. He was courageous. But once he becomes a politician, the truth is secondary to his political ambition. And he becomes literally a tool for the enemies of Martin Luther King. And that's the way it happens. I mean, um, yeah. Yeah, and also attacks from people who themselves are moral zeros, I think you had said. Morally bankrupt. Yeah, a morally bankrupt. And I think somebody said, you know, we cannot assume that because a person is in a movement, let us say Black Lives Matter, whatever that is, we cannot assume moral integrity. Because a person is a woman, a man of the left, we cannot assume moral integrity because you have people in movements and in the left uh, and so on who proceed from a, um, a thing, what would you call, the, the ends uh, justify the means. It's not a moral principle. In fact, for such people, there is no moral principle. The, uh, it's a kind of a, a moral pragmatism, transactional morality. Uh, and then of course, once you abandon any attempted morality and, um, and become, um, how, how could you say, where everything becomes about you, I mean, uh, it's hard to, uh, to see that person as being anything but an enemy of King. And so they attack King in defense of their own immorality or amorality. You know, can I just say one thing in response, which is I often think what Gandhi would say if he ever met his assassin. Mm. Um, <clears throat> his assassin um, was Nathuram Godse. And Martyr's Day is actually coming up at the end of this month. There is this coincidence of King's birthday and Gandhiji's death, material death anyway. And um, I, <laughs> you know, I almost feel like King would, King would, what would he say to his assassin? Well, I know one thing, he wouldn't call for the death penalty. Exactly. See what I'm he saying? Would, yeah, there it is. He would say, he would say, what would Jesus say? Absolutely. To his crucifiers? What would Gandhi say to his assassin? What would any true freedom fighter say? He would say, it doesn't matter. Like he says in this, I've been to the mountaintop. Yeah. I have realized who I am. And the kingdom of God is always in me. And um, I just think it's when someone reaches that level of re self-realization, to them, it's nothing almost. And um, it's just another phase of the wave, rising and falling. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so yeah, and it goes back, it took me back to the, which you brought up already, Doc, um, 
Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, where he has this wonderful critique of even leftists, you know, which is so relevant for our times because we see how there is humanity on these so-called right-wing fascists. And what is what do these terms mean at this point for us? Like, are we looking for are we looking for the right? I don't know what to call it. What are we looking for when we see these things happening? Are we looking for right and left? Or are we looking for truth and untruth? Satya and asatya and um, satyagraha. To sacrifice becomes so much easier when you love because you don't fear. Like what King was saying in that speech, fear, I don't fear, I fear no man. Having known, having known him, you know? Um, anyway, in, in Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, he says the kingdom of God is neither the thesis of individual enterprise. So, you know, traditional capitalism nor the antithesis of collective enterprise, but a synthesis which reconciles the truths of both. Which, um, and he says, you know, I, I read Marx. He says, Marx had revealed the danger of the profit motive as the sole basis of an economic system And he says that's true, but um, he says Marxism failed to see the truth at the same time in individual enterprise, which I think is what people are saying that, you know, no one wants to be spoon fed. I'm interested in, um how you articulate the search for truth, Divya, <clears throat> because um, one of the things that I inspired me about the King reading of Du Bois is him talking about Du Bois as a sociologist and then an activist and then a historian. And it's a reminder that truth exists on multiple planes and with like intersecting implications. I think to Doc's point about Barack Obama and John Lewis, truth is very hard to find on the political plane. I think most people know that. That's why people don't trust Congress. That's why people don't trust politics. If you talk to anybody that's rooted in the people, they don't trust politicians. Well, you know, in general, it's hard to find truth on the political plane. It has to be found in sociology, deep connection with the people in history and trying to understand that truth in the roots of activism. I think one of the challenges I think about in our, um, in our moment is how to distinguish in people's minds fights that are happening on the political plane versus fights that are happening for truth elsewhere because the political plane is taking advantage of those fights, but is 
is typically not the right on-ramp to engage it. And in the meantime, of course, our universities don't encourage the study of sociology or activism or history, right? Um, and so and even if they do teach them, teach them in a, a really shallow way. <clears throat> so how do we get people to properly contextualize the, the relative insignificance of searching for political truth in relation to truth that can be found on all those other levels? I think, I mean, this is one of the things that so attracted me to the free school because, um, I mean, it was politics with morality um, led by people who had sacrificed so much for that. And um, I mean, just people who are really dedicated. Uh, and I think that's the problem is people don't have principled political leaders who are willing to sacrifice. Um, so I think, I mean, the beautiful thing about King is that it was, uh, I mean, we have an example within the living memory of many of our people. Um, and going back to that example is, uh, I mean, it just gives a lot of hope that there can be a movement that's not rooted in cynicism or opportunism, but based in, um, you know, a genuine love for people. Um, yeah, but I think it's a really good point how politics has just been divorced from any kind of principled um, search or uh, the truth. Um, I think that's something that's a really big sign of our times, which is part of why people feel so much cynicism and despair. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, what Julian was saying is also that particularly uh, the electoral political plane is very devoid of truth. And I think we talked last week about how Congress has about 9% approval rating um, and basically includes both parties in Congress as well. And I think for much of the history of this uh, country, that electoral political plane has been very much uh, devoid of truth. And you could argue even set up so that there's very limited amounts of truth and engagement uh, with the people. But uh, that being said, I mean, there have been times where there has been, you know, more truth. I mean, if you read uh, Black Reconstruction, uh, Du Bois talks about the radical Republicans, or what's traditionally called the radical Republicans, people like Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner and Wendell Phillips. But he, he talks about how they're motivated by abolition democracy mm -hmm. and how in, in a kind of a dialectic with the Black worker, they were even moving further beyond abolition democracy into, into a leadership of the proletariat yeah. and uh, I mean that was that was possible in that time something which was a real possibility people who are uh, members of congress who were thinking in this way so it I, at least to me it, it gives some hope that through the I guess you could say the hammer blows of events and the connections between these different planes as we put it the people sociology history that even in politics or even in electoral politics you can have at least a movement towards the truth and in some ways i think the situation we're in now in which there are severe cracks in that electoral plane is i think very good it gives the possibility so at least some some truth can filter in but uh i definitely agree that 
the primary place where uh, work needs to be done is on these other planes of connecting the people to sociology, history. And I think that can have a great impact on politics, whether most likely non-electoral, but even in terms of, of the government sphere. And so those possibilities are all, I think, uh, open to us in, in this time. Yeah, and also like the whole movement in the world, like in our moment now, and we talked about the Asian pact, if I'm saying it right. Um, Recep, was it? Oh yeah, 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 Recep, yeah. Recep. Regional Comprehensive yeah. Economic uh, Plan, is that what? Recep. Yeah, and program, just like- Program, mm -hmm. yeah. Yep, and what Emily pointed out last week was Xi Jinping's speech, um, maybe it was in her article. Oh, shoot. But talking about like the, or no, that was in Doc's article when he talked about the civilization, um, you know, uh, and how he, you know, Doc was uh, connecting the uh, Du Bois with Xi Jinping. Um, but yeah, like the realignment in the world uh, also shows that kind of new possibilities to emerge. Um, or, and I think um, like with the, you know, March on the 6th to the Capitol, um, the issues with that, that I saw was that, um, it wasn't organized in the same way as was, you know, the civil rights movement with a larger, you know, kind of organized front that I, you know, and, uh, you know, it wasn't just King out in the front doing that. But there were or organizations that built to that leadership in particular. And I think it's true that the consciousness of people are, you know, is kind of relative, but it's not that people don't read or can't read either. I think that we live in a country with people that are educated, you know, to what level it is a question of, you know, where the people are, who I'm talking about whatever, but um, people do read um, to some degrees. And I think the issue with the like connections of how, you know, so these planes of, you know, how can we reach the truth um, can be actualized if there is that kind of organization of people mm -hmm. um, but without that, you know, and that's why you have this ideological crisis and where the leaders who could have emerged within the left, you know, are now arguing amongst each other. And for example, or, or like to add on to that, um, the, uh, you know, there isn't that clarity there. It just isn't that clarity of, you know, what is right, what is wrong. And then you have, you know, postmodernism, for example, um, easily emerging um, but also like the question of history coming back to me again just now because it's like, you know, we talked last week about Fukuyama's end of history, but also how history is ultimately connected with people and the movement for movement of people is how history is able to move. And um, it's all like the moment we're in, in this country is to take away, you know, the actualization of a progressive movement of people. Um, but as we are looking at the world, you know, um, there's there's these kind of cracks within, you know, the 
United States imperialist hegemony, you know, against, you know, they, you know, Trump was good, for example, because of his pullback of war. Um, but what uh, Jahan, you're pointing out in terms of the electoral thing, like there is no trust within the government of people. So then there's a crisis of legitimacy as we were pointing out prior. So like, like the crisis of the left from the way I'm seeing it is also a crisis of organization of the people, but you also need that organization in order for there to be that forward march of history. But um, just to add to what you're saying. Uh, we have a little bit of comments. Uh, Jason Ford writes, the original sin here is the theft of land and labor and the transplantation of human beings against their will with impunity. All the rest is sound and fury. There is good which has emerged, but there remains a remedy to be addressed, no matter how many have aided and abetted evil commerce. There are some things eternally worth struggling for, or what's a human or morality for? We are not merely lower primates, though we often behave that way towards one another. If I steal a man's house and make improvements on the home, the improvements justify the forcible taking uh if we do not resolve without violence and rancor this original sin we are doomed in our affluence to human moral mediocrity even degradation we will see as we already have the moral consequence of these historical omissions uh, grady lights writes uh i hear baldwin on the eternal and time in doc's report of king's fear of death which if anything king was courageous so demonstrably he fiercely persevered through the fear of physical death, that is death of the dispossession of a physical body to contain and carry his agency and actions in the world. Know that fe the fear that twitched King was a fear, yes, but also I believe more profound remorse that he would be materially dispossessed of the means to serve the liberation of all people. No, he lost this latter fear of losing his personal agency per se because he stepped out of time where such fear is seated and sustained and into the eternal where there is no past nor future, simply an endless now where he stood on the mountaintops and saw the world house draped in our single fabric of destiny, blanket, blanketing our planet. He saw indeed the glory of the coming of the Lord. The glory of the what? Coming of the Lord. Yeah. Which I should say, oh. glory of the coming of freedom. Hmm. And uh, a single, you know, world has a single humanity. Well, just that, I mean, exactly that. Well, what is the Lord? Yeah. yeah this you know, it's the ultimate idea of freedom we always have is this being who is completely free. Um, who is, we can't be that free as human beings. I mean, so long as we have to eat, you know, we're dependent on nature. Um, and yet this Lord, my, it's to witness, just to see him, you know, or her, however you conceptualize mm -hmm. the divine. Um, and, you know, what strikes me just to speak on that note um, that in that, I didn't read the whole speech, but 
actually the middle section in some ways is the most important part. It's also known as the if I, the if I had sneezed speech where King is actually reflecting in, uh, I've been to the mountaintop on a previous assassination attempt mm -hmm. because it was when this woman stabbed him. Her name was uh, Viola, I forget, I forget her whole name. Um, but she ended up stabbing him with a pen knife and the doctor said, if she had just stabbed you a little bit towards your heart, you would have been dead. And you had, you know, and if you had sneezed, you would have been dead. But he's, but it's so striking. Again, it goes back to that conquest of fear which is, I think, at the root of what it means to be human. We all have these fears constantly, fear of money, of losing it, fear of losing your husband or your lover or your parents, especially now your child to death and disease. but you can't be afraid is what he teaches me. And uh, of course the coming of the Lord is also how the kind of phrase or concept Du Bois uses uh, in Black Reconstruction to discuss uh, abolition and the coming of, of freedom. Um, but Okay, I guess on that same speech, a, we, a critical comment from Nabila. Uh, she, she says, uh, Divya read my least favorite King speech. Where he's talking to people of African descent, but could only relate to European history. However, her let my people go had me singing along, play again, Sam. Um, all right, uh, Caleb writes, this discussion has reminded me just of just how global King's influence has been and how his vision of a beloved community meant a world be built on peace and love. There is an article I read this week authored by Cuban pastor Francisco Rodes discussing King's influence on the churches as they realized the potential of the Cuban revolution, the churches in Cuba that is. One thing that stood out to me is King's profound influence on their theology and grounding their ecclesiastical work with pursuing liberation and attending to the suffering of all people. I wanted to share a passage from the article discussing King's influence. Uh, quote, however, evangelicals nurtured in a tradition of commitment to the church and devotion to the Bible felt emptiness and were not completely at ease. We needed to discover resources in our own tradition. It is here where Martin Luther King Jr. became a guiding light. King was a man of the church a Baptist preacher with Bible in hand, defending the cause of the oppressed. Quickly, he became the hero of the new generations of Christians in Cuba. We were still unfamiliar with the breadth of his thought, but the little we did know inspired us to, to live a faith committed to the disinherited. King's witness and through him an introduction to Gandhi gave us a concrete example of active nonviolent resistance in the face of injustice. Most importantly, King's life provided a new way to read the story of Jesus. Uh, Caleb was mentioning to me, uh, because he was doing some research about um, 
uh, King's, you know, influencer relationship with Cuba and Cuban revolution. And uh, he did find uh, a bit about how these uh, Cuban churches, in order to try to make sense of the new direction of the Cuban revolution, uh, some uh, of Cuba after the revolution, I should say, some of them turned to the ideas of King in order to find a synthesis of Christianity that was in line with the values of the Cuban revolution. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting history. Maybe we can look more into that. Um, Jason Ford writes, did George Bush beat his wife? You'll never know. I doubt Martin Luther King would ever beat his wife, nor would I. Ever it amazes me how much of history goes unreported while salacious gossip destroys good men. Uh, Jeremiah writes, the assassination of King's character, which parades under the guise of insisting that people are, quote, complicated, is effective at obscuring the actual complexity of King's thinking and political practice. King faced and accepted the gargantuan task of formulating the philosophy of a revolutionary movement and organizing wide swaths of people who themselves were complex agents of change. As others have said, this required a nuanced, sensitive understanding of human psychology, sociology, etc., as well as an incredible depth of creativity and courage. Uh, Jason Ford also writes, King would pray for and even love his assassin as crazy as that sounds. He was a genuine Christian. He would try to transform the hate which motivated his assassin into love. You know, it's uh, I, I just remember that Reverend James Lawson, who came to the free school, um, we invited him for the year of Gandhi, uh, and he came here and spoke at Philadelphia City Hall. I remember he actually visited uh, the assassin of Martin Luther King and made friends with him. And I think even officiated his wedding, I'm not sure, or some, he had a really deep connection with him. And <coughs> he basically said that he didn't believe that he was the assassin. He believed that he was a, a patsy, basically. Um, but just, I mean, really, these people were so thoroughly moral. Um, and that really enabled them to get to the truth. Um, yeah. um, another comment by David Ron. He writes, read Lenin's What is to be Done and State and Revolution and Mao. Americans in the Black Lives Matter movement and allies now that the Biden administration is bringing in a domestic terrorist Patriot Act, which will be used more against the left after they go after the leaders of the alt-right on the surface. The American left has to move away from anarchist political factions that are filled with opportunists and join the PSL or build revolutionary mass line third parties in keeping with the Black Panther Party. Uh, well, I would like to say to David that uh, the huge problem with the American left that we've been saying, I think here, is that they haven't engaged with Martin Luther King's ideas. And the solution is not to try to uh, imitate revolutions in a very shallow way that happened in other places or to dogmatically read the writings of Lenin or Mao, although we do take those writings very seriously. I think that, that what, we are, what we are arguing for is that the solution is to seriously engage with the ideas of King and Du Bois, which are the ideas that have in the past had the most potential to transform the society. And we argue uh, still have that potential. So my, I guess we're, we're glad that you're at least listening to what we're saying. Did you want to add anything, Doc? 
Well, I, I hear you, man. Um, and, and I think, um, I think, you know, what, what you were struggling for is a way to understand and, and explain complexity and to make sense of a crisis the likes of which the country has never experienced. I mean, whether we like it or not, most Americans in one or another way embrace the idea of American exceptionalism. Uh, a pandemic could never come to this country. Oh, it could be in Africa, it could be in India, but we're never gonna experience, because we're exceptional. Um, a crisis of this magnitude could never come to the United States because we're exceptional. So, um, but when you, when you talk, I think the problem is you instruct us to read what is to be done and uh, the state and revolution. Uh, and I would suggest, yes, we must read that, those works, uh, but, but you don't mention uh, we should read uh, King for Time to Break Silence or the letter from a Birmingham jail or uh, Du Bois's uh, Russia and America. Now, and this, this, is, this, is a, this is a big problem and you don't know, I think American exceptionalism, American nationalism kind of influences what people read and what they see as revolutionary. Um, uh, well, yeah, but we could, we could go further into that. I think, I think you have to broaden your reading list, first of all, uh, and broaden um, your sense of uh, 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 your sensibility to include more than what you have been instructed is revolutionary thinking. Uh, I, I'll, you know, maybe he'll respond and go back and forth a little bit, but it is, it's not that simple. I'll put it that way. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, Nuri writes, uh, King said that we cannot talk of Du Bois without recognizing that he was a radical all of his life and that he would be in the front ranks of the peace movement today. He refers to how Du Bois was a communist, but says that his greatest virtue was his committed empathy with all the oppressed and his divine dissatisfaction with all forms of injustice. That is to say his moral character and commitment to revealing the truth of his people and their history. In sharp contrast to the quote radical King Symposium last year, which sought to fit and compare King to the arbitrary standards of radical politics today, evaluating Kings in regards to topics like urban guerrilla warfare and sexuality. I appreciate how in celebrating King and his connections and resonance with revolutionaries and leaders like Du Bois, Mao, and Indira Gandhi show us a different kind of example or blueprint of everything we're striving for in terms of unity, sacrifice, and historical significance. Um, well, I like the way that you put it. The, the problem is that uh, people are trying to understand King by the standards of the supposed radical politics of today. As Doc, as you were saying, the, what we've been instructed is radical or revolutionary today. And it's a huge problem. It's a very extremely paralyzing framework to understand King through that lens, or really to understand anything through that lens, I think it's very paralyzing. But 
maybe try to understand things. Yeah, it's it's a metaphysical, dogmatic approach to uh, understanding the crisis of capitalism and revolutionary uh, strategies and tactics. Um, very dogmatic. Uh, in fact, early this morning, I was, you know, as you know, I wake up early, so I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about the concepts of racial capitalism, settler uh, colonialist regimes. Uh, and, and then it just happens that Michelle Facebook messages me. And it, so she was th somehow thinking about the same thing. And the question becomes, do these formulations, are they not uh, representative of a metaphysics, a dogma, which cannot see things in their development, not in their uh, a static situation. Um, and, uh, you know, in this sense, to know something, and this is, of course, Hegel, to know something is to know it in its motion, to know it as it emerges into something new. Uh, Marx adds to it because, you know, the idealism of Hegel, but Marx adds that we must, in, in our method must be one that ascends to the concrete. And the word ascends to the concrete rather than descend to the concrete is such an important thing. But then it, there is Du Bois because everybody's gonna say, well, yeah, that's all good, but what about the color line? And that is when a more complex understanding of dialectics, you might wish to call it dialectics through triads, trialectics, uh, uh, understanding twos through threes, but that's another question. But we're dealing with complexity. We're not dealing with static uh, uh, things. And your imagination, a person's imagination might be shaped through certain documentary films of the Russian Revolution, let us say. Well, this is a very different, qualitatively different moment in history. And it is the United States. And without bending to American exceptionalism, we have to pay really close attention to the social scientists like Du Bois and King, who were also activists, who understood this society, this culture, and this civilization. But I, I, there's a few more things I'd like to say, but I don't want to call the, the mic, as they say. Well, I, I think there's a point which we'll have to, we'll probably return to, but I, about racial capitalism. But I think this is it's very important that the distinction you were making about viewing things in a static way and then seeing things in their development. That is the problem. And that is going, what we were saying earlier about the fact that King and Du Bois were not determinist or over-determinist. Mm -mm. They saw that every human being has moral choice. Yeah. This is the same thing to view, to have this racial capitalism thesis, which is, you know, essentially arguing about, you know, uh, basically take, saying that the white worker has no real moral choice, no real agency, right, right. not in a process of development, him or herself, but is something static and metaphysical. Um, and it's even worse in the kind of settler theory, which is yeah, also yeah. Vogue. 
And uh, so this is a very important point that development, motion, which you can relate to the concept of, of the moral choice, which Du Bois expands, can expand in more complicated ways. Um, and that's so important for understanding the politics of today, the things which are in development right now. Mm -hmm. See, I think I would slightly reframe or realign that configuration. It doesn't seem metaphysical to me, actually at all. It seems actually a desire to affix reality to the external, actually a kind of hyper empiricism where you'll say, look at that person, look at how they look like. That must be true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whether you know you're you dress a certain way or you have a certain kind of mannerism or whatever, or like you're, you know, um, you're rich or you're poor. It's surface. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the world we live in. Everything is the image. Mm -hmm. But we are with that. Mm -hmm. uh, which 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 suggests to me that actually it's a problem of materialism. And now, of course, you know, I'm not a strict metaphysical type person, but ultimately, if you think of something, if you have a sense of something like morality or the mind, you know, there is a struggle between body and mind and what, you know, whatever is beyond that, however you wish to think of that. Um, but it seems like I think it goes back to the Western problem, which is the problem of um, science and how you see the world, which is science is something that happens outside mm -hmm. of you, but you don't see the unity of whatever is happening out there is happening inside too. And so it's, it's that metaphysical versus physical, mm -hmm. binary, if you will, duality is, um, is a problem of how you see time, space, and causality is as far as I have um, thought on that. But it's... Um, it's really, you know, it's it really striking because we're being told that, oh, it's racial capitalism, hate it. How, how could you not hate it? You're a raced person. Um, but okay, yes, I see it. But again, it goes back to what Du Bois was saying about positivism. You throw these categories out there, even if you're a Marxist, you know, it's, it's uh, heteronormativity. It is uh, racial capitalism. It is uh, patriarchy. But then you're like, okay, wait a minute. But these are still in. These are still human actors. And that's goes back to sociology hesitant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Uh, another comment from uh, Grady. He writes, as I have shared many times, I have been formulating working hypotheses regarding the Black radical tradition. One hypothesis is that there is a systematic spirituality which its avatars did not have the time to articulate as a separate component of the tradition. Given the dire urgency of their times, they did not need to do so. For their thoughts of spirituality were so systematically and seamlessly woven into their service, dedicated to the liberation of people in color in particular and people in general. The following excerpt from King's honorific address to, to uh, King and our world contained major premises of the black radical tradition systematic spirituality. Number one, and yet, uh, to King's address to uh, tribute to Du Bois, number one, and yet with all his pride and spirit, he did not make a mystique out of blackness. He was proud of his people, not because their color endowed them with some vague greatness, but because their concrete achievements and struggle had advanced humanity. And he saw and loved progressive humanity in all its hues, black, white, yellow, red, and brown. Number two, Above all, he did not content himself with hurling invectives for emotional release and then to retire into smug, passive satisfaction. Number three, history had taught him it is not enough for people to be angry. Number four, the supreme task is to organize and unite people so that their anger becomes a transforming force. Number five, it was never possible to know where the scholar Du Bois ended and the organizer Du Bois began. The two qualities in him were a single unified force. Number six, the lifestyle of Dr. Du Bois is the most important quality that this generation of Negroes need to emulate. I see premise two about not hurling invective at those whose ideologies differ from one's own as a major moral imperative we should embrace as we pursue ideological clarity and critique our alters. I no longer use the word others, ideological positions. Um. Then he, Grady also has a comment on, from King's last speech, note his usage of Lord. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to keep, to, to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm, so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Um, Art Lee writes, I really love framing it as the quote, conquest of fear. I've met a lot of people who look down on things like King's nonviolence and any ideology of peace. Many of these friends have learned and are holding on to violent intents in their heart and refuse to trust others because they are afraid others must also be holding onto the same want of violence. It's tragic and dividing. Unity requires trust and trust is undermined by fear. Um, and Grady also adds, our world is superficial agreed, but what about the manifold interactions with the spiritual world via art, aesthetics and the entire body of human beings, witness to the radical reality of this spiritual interface. Nabila asks, what was King's promised land? Well, 
what his promised land was. I mean, it was freedom, it was justice, it was peace. I mean, the promised land was all humanity uh, project and the salvation of humanity from uh, all that was uh, uh, bad for, for human beings. That's what I think. Slavery, yeah. freedom from slavery, you know, whether that is to yourself, to this idea of you, or to another. This idea that that is the promise. Every human being is destined for freedom. Like the moon is always trying to, to leave its orbit. The universe is always trying to break free of the laws of causation. <laughs> we're, we're, we're different, but we're also the same. Uh, in relation to that question, and also, also again, makes me think back to um, the arguments Du Bois makes in the coming of the Lord chapter in Black Reconstruction. And I think part of it is not just understand in order to understand what did king mean you have to understand what the people he was speaking to thought of the promised land or the coming of the lord right. and because he's deeply engaged with their thinking on this question how it informed their life worlds and spiritual worlds um so i think that's that's uh, very important nabila adds freedom from the triple evils yeah. i think that includes the promised land so, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're reaching the end of comments. So <laughs> shall we move towards? Uh, oh, no, Johan. You don't have to if you have more you'd like I to. Mean, maybe we could uh, wait until next week to, re to restart. Uh, yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah, we can. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we should, yeah next I know how people in the free school get hungry after a couple of hours. <laughs> right. It's intense philosophy takes a toll on people's stomachs. Yeah, well, tell me about it. Uh, All right. Yeah, I think this has been a, a really great session. I really do. And, you know, it's always... I mean, I just always love being around the free school when people sing and dance and the art, because without that, without art and singing and poetry, I don't think you can have a movement. Um, and I think Grady said, it is an appeal to the higher moral and spiritual values, the aesthetic values, the moral, and they do come together, the great art and the great morality. So I, I was, and just, uh, I want to thank Divya because she's the one that said we had to do this. She brought it to my attention and I brought it to everybody else's attention. And then I want to, you know, I, I mean, the reading um, of the King of the King's speech on Du Bois, uh, Julian, I think that was really beautiful. So it's just been a wonderful day for me, man. <laughs> And you know, to tell you the truth, I would have felt 
that I did something wrong if I was not a part of this. You know, if we didn't celebrate King the way we have, I would have, I would have felt like uh, I did something wrong. <laughs> right. Uh, some people were also writing in the comments that people who are new, they were like, oh, this is great intellectual discussion and a free concert thrown in. <laughs> so I think in this, you know, in these difficult times, people are going, it's difficult political times, people are going through difficult personal times. I think events like this, with the art, the culture mixed with the uplifting, yes. means a lot to people. So I, I'd like to thank everybody who joined us, performed, read today. And uh, I'd like to thank all our viewers for joining us. And I think this has been a special edition of the Free School dedicated to 92 years of Martin Luther King. And uh, we'll see everybody next week. All right.